This is Ibarri and X, and this is The Candid Frame. There are many photographers who aspire to live the life of a landscape photographer. The biggest obstacle to them achieving their goal is not equipment, or knowledge, or even money, but rather one of having enough time. But today's guest, Jay Patel, manages to make the most of his time, which could total less than two months in the field, to make a remarkable body of work rich with color, insight, and beauty. Along with his wife, Verena, who is also a photographer, he has become adept at making the most of his time, and his images are certainly the better for it. Well, Jay, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I've heard a lot of buzz about your work over the last last year, um, and I've been taking a look at your images, and it's just just beautiful, beautiful work. And so I was really eager to have the chance to sit down and, and, and talk with you. I wanted to start with, because you talk about your interest in the natural world began because of some excursions that you took as a boy when you were living in India. And... Tell me about the locations that you, you went to and who introduced you to that. Was that a family member? Was it part of a school outing? No, no, it was um, uh, family travels, actually. First of all, thanks for saying the nice things about my work. When I was a young kid, we used to travel all over India. So I've been to pretty much all of North India, every city there is there, all the way from Himalayas to the deserts. I would always go on these locations and we would go and see these beautiful mountains light up. At that time, I always thought, hey, this is such a great thing to do is to be able to capture that. Of course, when you're little kids, you have a lot of other things to do while you're on vacation. It's just fool around with your cousins and your friends who are there. Mm -hmm. But it's it was all a part of our family vacation that every summer we would go to some, take a some long trip, two, three weeks, and then come back and enjoy the rest of the summer. So that's when I was first introduced to outdoor stuff. Was it a passion of, of, of your father or your mother or, or both? Actually, no. My parents were not an outdoors kind of person. Uh, my dad was into photography. He had an old Yashica single reflex camera. But he never really seriously took it as a hobby. It was more of, I mean, seriously took it other than anything other than a hobby. It was like he would take photos of the family on vacations and things like that, but nothing that was fine arts, landscapes, outdoor stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I just enjoyed the location uh, more than anything else before I got into photography. Did you find that there was a particular location that really inspired that passion and that love for the outdoors? It wasn't in India per se, but my photography career um, has sort of lots of twists and turns. And because I was inspired in India, what I tried to do was have, get a camera or purchase a camera while I was in India. For some reason or another, the the camera that I was trying to purchase didn't really go through. There was only one camera available in the city I grew up in, and it was sold. And, and after about not having to purchase a camera, two months after that, I came to U.S. to go to school. And like all other students, I was dead broke. So my photography career was then on hold through the school. And since I got a job, I didn't really have much time to invest after that in photography. Until 
uh, digital cameras first started to make their appearance back in mid-1990s. And at that time, I visited Alaska. And when I was visiting Alaska, I, I had just a film camera with a normal kit lens that comes comes with at 28 to 90 or something, nothing greater than that. But the sights I saw in Alaska were something that I desperately tried to capture with that, that small camera and a kit lens. And of course, I didn't do any justice to that. But after that, I was more inclined towards finding out how the photography career or photography science worked and and sort of going after it. So if you want to call it a location, it was Alaska, but not quite in a true sense is what the question you were asking. Mm -hmm. So you start that, that moment of having a camera, taking those pictures and finding that your images left you, you wanting that can inspire a huge career in, in photography as it has has for you. But where did you find yourself starting? How did you make use of your time so that you could absorb as much as you could about photography? So the first thing I did was to purchase a point-and-shoot. Back in those days, you know, the good point-and-shoot cameras even cost like almost $1,000, maybe $700. And my primary reason to get a point and shoot rather than to invest in a film camera was that I needed the technical information that the point and shoot cameras provided at that time. The way I went about learning was I used to read Outdoor Photography magazine and, and every other magazine that came out over the weekends. And then I would take my point and shoot and try to figure out how to sort of take pictures in a similar style. Uh, with similar lighting conditions, similar exposures. It took a long time. I I got my first point and shoot in, uh, I believe, 1999 or 1998, sometime around there. And it took me a long time just to figure out how the exposure worked. I am mostly taught by magazines, reading magazines, reading other people's work, mm -hmm. as well as um, at that time that I was learning, we had an enormous advantage where the Internet was a major resource for us. So I would go and scour sites like Porter.net, DP Review, uh, Imaging Resources, and read any and all technical articles I could get my hands on at that point in time to figure out how a digital camera worked and what the technical aspects of the camera were. You talk about learning the, the technical stuff and, and the challenges of that. But one of the things that I like about your images is that you have an amazing awareness and use of, of lighting. And learning that is sometimes separate from all the technical aspects of the camera itself. Did you find that developing an eye for light was more of a challenge than the technical or, or no? So there are two sides to photography in which I really enjoy one is this creative side or uh, finding the right light, finding the right location, finding the right combination of elements that actually produces a photograph with impact. And the other side is the technical side. When my first man of my career began for the first time in late 1990s, what I was lacking clearly was technical side because I couldn't even expose a photograph properly. So first few years of my life were concentrated on getting good at technical side. And once I achieved a certain plateau on technical side, then what I did was I tried to go after more subtle things called 
the light. And I remember the transition occurring sometime around 2003 to 2004, where I would actually put away the technical challenges because I sort of knew what I was doing. It became mechanical at some point in time. And then what I wanted to do was to be able to look for the right light or the right location. And as the transition occurred from technical side to the creative side or to looking for the light side, I also realized that there's another side of transition that you have to make yourself uh, do, which is to be able to physically be fit enough to be able to get into that location. I spent quite a bit of time after 2002 to actually get in shape to be able to hike several miles or backpack with a camera or gear. And now it's all natural. But uh, those two transition was fairly distinct. Now, over the my photography career that spans, I personally think my photography career spans since 2001 when I first got my DSLR. Uh, those kind of transitions have occurred quite a few times, actually, where I went from concentrating from technical side to creative side, back to technical side, back to creative side. And I am assuming that in next decade, it'll probably continue to occur as the technology of the camera develops. And also my vision and creative side learns to see more of what people think is an impact producing photograph. Yeah. And, and, and you bring up a good point that I don't think is often discussed when people are talking about this type of photography is the physical constitution that you have to have in order to make those shots, because a lot of your photographs are not made off of the side of the road. Talk about a little in terms of not just what you have to carry, but you know what you recommend for people to prepare themselves physically to be able <laughs> to produce, you know, the work because because most you know most photographers are sitting in front of a computer, you know, moving a mouse, which is not much exercise. But if they want to, if they aspire to do work along the lines that you do, what what are some of the things they have to consider seriously? That's a great question. Actually, it isn't that not all my shots are taken off by enormous physical challenges, but there are quite a few that are, and and some of the locations just require you to be there. What we do, and I'll I'll tell you how we prepare ourselves. My wife and I both are photographers. And um, throughout the week, my routine is to be able to run four to six miles a couple of times a week, uh, bicycle two to three times a week. At least once or twice, uh, we'll work out weight training. So I spend probably anywhere between four to six hours a week working out and making sure that I'm in a shape uh, to be able to do that. Uh, my gear, my just my camera bag itself will uh, weight weighs about twenty to twenty five pounds. It isn't that we are running marathons, but in a given day when we go out to shoot, I'll tell you a typical day for us would be like to get up at four o'clock in the morning, drive to the location. Um, if we have to hike a mile or two, we will hike a mile or two, and in that case, sometimes go early. And um, get on the location, take photographs of sunrise, then figure out how um, things are or what the weather is like, and then come back, have breakfast. And then oftentimes we'll go exploring uh, for four to five hours after breakfast. And then during those hours, we would have hiked two to three miles carrying this heavy backpack 
which we call just our camera gear, and then come back, have lunch. Sometimes we'll have lunch on location and continue to hike until sundown. So in a given day, we can actually end up carrying 25 pounds of backpack over 10 miles. And we will do that for three, four, five, six days when necessary. You have to be able to have stamina to be able to do that, wake up early, get to bed, and then do this over and over again. But that's the kind of physical training that we tell people who are really want to seriously get into it to be able to make sure that you're in a shape to be able to do. And you have to have a great degree of patience when you're out there doing all that and the weather's not cooperating. Oh, definitely. I mean, we've been out there, like, I'll tell you the last trip to Iceland. It actually rained, hailed, and sort of snowed and rained and hailed and more uh, for seven straight days. Of the seven days we were in Iceland, we saw sunrise uh, or sunshine probably no more than six hours. The weather takes a toll on you. I mean, you don't just, we don't recommend that, or at least we don't do it, so I don't know what other people do, is we have shots that we have taken where we get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and drive in a snowstorm for three hours to get to a location just to be able to shoot for 15 minutes and then drive back for three hours. So weather is always a challenge, but with the worst weather, comes some of the best shots you can get. Wow, and that 15 minutes can be just fantastic. Oh, absolutely fantastic, and I can get you some examples if you ever want some. That's an amazing risk. I traveled all the way to get to Iceland. I'm in this, I got to drive for this hellish weather for maybe nothing. So how do you keep heartened about that? Do you sort of look at it over the grand scale that sometimes you, you get it and sometimes you don't? So this is where um, some of those transitions we talked about come into play. So if you were to ask me this question when I first started photography, I would be like, oh, the weather sucks, and I would just give up. Some of the transitions that a photographer goes through during his career are such that you actually learn to respect the weather and see creative side of any kind of conditions. Even in Iceland or even in the worst weather that you find yourself in, there are always shots to take. So one of the transitions that has occurred um, recently, maybe for the last four or five years since I started shooting with my wife, Marina, is to be able to see things that are not quite obvious to other photographers. I'll give you an example. What do you do if you are faced with cloudless sky in the middle of the day, harsh light, and you have no possibility of getting any clouds for the next several days. What kind of photographs will you take? And what we as photographers have made a transition is we will actually go out and seek photographs that match those light conditions. So now in my career, weather is less of a problem than it was probably maybe six, eight, ten years ago. Um, one of the best ebooks that we have written is an ebook called Learning to See, where we show you not only breathtaking shots from different weather conditions, but breathtaking shots under different light conditions, different locations, different terrains. So when you put yourself or when you make that transition to be able to see creatively or when you value that creativity, you can overcome the weather in such an amazing and efficient way that 
photographers would be actually be surprised. Mm. When it comes to, to location, what do you do when you've never been to a place before in terms of finding not only whether or not you go there, but when you go there and exactly what locations or, or trails you're going to take to go to the destination, what do you do when you want to go to a particular place and you're really working from scratch? We do a lot of research on the internet. Oftentimes, we would actually contact the photographers who have been there. So we will look at somebody else's work and say, oh, the guy has been there. We will send them an email, say, what do you do with that? We will also talk to park rangers if it's a national park to say, hey, what do you guys recommend? Now we have such a following on our website that if we tell people that, hey, we're going to be at a location, people will be just like, oh, can we come and shoot with you? So for us, it's easy to come in contact with a local photographer who is either living there or has been there and shot on location with them. In case everything else fails, what we do is we um, take opportunities when, let's say, even in some weather situation, there is nothing creative to do. Or even if there is something creative to do, what we will do is we will actually take our gear and we'll talk to the local people and say, where are the good trails to go hiking? And as a routine part of our photographic expedition, what we will do is we will spend enormous time out scouting. So one of the reasons why I told you that oftentimes we'll go on location and we'll just eat lunch over there is a lot of times you would be scouring those locations. By scouting, we will go in, walk three, four, five miles on a trail, see what location has to offer, get things like what kind of flowers are there, what kind of geology is there, what kind of uh, direction the canyon is facing, uh, when is it high tide, when is it low tide. We will explore all of those phenomena and make note of those locations. And then we'll either come back the next day or we will come back the day after or we'll come back some other time of the year if we think that the location has better opportunities the other time of the year. So part of the scouting has to be kind of organic to your expedition of taking photographs. So you don't want to just go to a place just to take photographs and come back. When you go to a place, you take photographs, you scout, you take photographs, you scout some more. I'll give you an example of what our scouting is like. Delicate Arch. Uh, it's one of the most photographed places on the world. Uh, we've been there before, but when we went there, we did not know which way the arc, um, the Delicate Arch was facing, whether it was uh, axis of the arch was lined up north-south or whether the line was east-west or some other angle. Now, the time we went there, we knew that there was going to be a full moon next day. And one of our goals was to be able to see if we can capture moon and the arch in the same shot or moon appearing towards arch. And in for order to do that, we needed to know the, the axis of the arch. So first thing we did was we got there, we put on our backpacks and climbed 750 feet or 500 feet, however tall the mile, mile and a half trail is and we went there took out our compasses looked at it and said ah the light is too bad there's nothing here we want to shoot and just walked back down again so that three miles and several hundred feet climb was just to explore the location part of that is about 
understanding that that's not going to be the only moment you're going to be there. That allows you sort of the, the freedom from the pressure of having to make a photograph even under bad light. Yeah, and it is important to give yourself permission because I can tell you that the light is not constant. If you ever have been to a location like Bryce, for example, the colors of the Bryce will actually change between summer and winter sunrises. In the summer, there is a hill or a ridge that is at a location. So if you were to look at Bryce from summer, the, the first light doesn't fall until sun is quite way up in the sky. So when, when the first rays of the light fall in summer in Bryce, they're more orange. Now, the sun has moved in the winter, and the first rays of the light to hit Bryce are unobstructed from horizon. And Bryce being at 9,300 feet, 9,000 feet, gets this deep red color in the winter. So be able to know the change of light in location is important for you. And that is one of the reasons why we give ourselves liberty to say, hey, is this the best location to photograph at the time we are in? Or do seasons, the tides, the, the light, uh, angle of the sun matter? And all of that is, is part of our scouting process. Do you keep notes of all this information? So as you're going, you're going to these scouting locations. Are you actively writing all these things down, either in a notebook or on your, or your computer? So that because you visit a wide wide variety of areas, so is there a system that you have for keeping track of all this all this awareness? We don't necessarily have notes as much as we have knowledge of how weather and light changes that we have acquired over last 10 years. We sort of know what the weather and the light conditions and patterns are going to do. And um, rather than have a specific location in mind that we want to come and shoot at, what we will do is our trips are usually planned like this. We have six kids. And believe it or not, all the photographs that you've seen on our sites, my site, my wife's site, has been taken no more than 30 days our travel time is no more than 30 days um, a year. So we will go and shoot for about 30 to 40 days. We will not shoot any more than 30 to 40 days in an entire year because we just don't have time. Business takes up rest of the time. Kids take up rest of the time. What we have learned over past several years is to be able to figure out what is the best time to visit what location. So our travel occurs like this. If we have time in April, we will say, what is the best time to visit April? And that includes, we will look at tidal charts, the sun and the moon rise times. It will include the weather, conditions of which the leaves are in, flowers, things like that. And based on that, we will say, okay, we want to visit X location. So that's how we plan. We don't say, we want to visit this location. Let's just go. We will say, what time of year are we going and what's the best location to go to? That's amazing. It's just that it's that limited number of days out of the year that you're actively going out and photographing. Because like most people, they have normal lives. They have obligations. And, you know, one of the biggest complaints I think every photographer has is they don't have enough time to shoot. But here you are, you know, with 30, 40, 40 days out of the year making these amazing photographs. And I think it's a testament to the fact that even though it may be a limited amount of time, you're committing to yourself to make the most of that, that short time that you have to go out and use the camera. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is, uh, it doesn't come easy because 
the the way a lot of photographers are driven by location, like you said, and your question kind of preclude to that too, saying what location should I go shoot, right? The breathtaking location. Our philosophy is very different. Um, if you read some of our blogs, we always say that if I had to pick a time of the year to visit a spectacular location or time of the year where I can get spectacular light, I will actually almost always choose spectacular light. Now, sometimes that spectacular light can be at the same time as spectacular location. That's mm. great. But if I had to choose between the two, we will choose spectacular light. And and uh, there are several shots in my gallery. We were actually going to visit uh, one of the most spectacular locations called um, Horseshoe Bend. And there's a quarter mile hike from the parking lot, not very long hike. And there's a small ridge you need to climb. As soon as we climbed this ridge, we saw these gorgeous sunbeams dropping down from the sky. And our first thing was, oh, I want to photograph this over the horseshoe bend. But as we started to descend, we realized that all the layers that you could see from up on the ridge started to disappear. So we stopped. We said, forget the location. This is great light. You'll never quite see anything like this before or after or is rare to see. So we just stopped. We dropped everything. We found interesting foregrounds in middle of nowhere and shot and forgot about the location, which was probably no more than a quarter mile away from us. And that's how we our travels are also um, based on that. Yeah. We will look for places where light plays uh, or we get the best chance of getting the best light. But how do you figure that out? Because as you said earlier, weather can be very unpredictable. So if you, you know, you're sitting there and you're looking at a map and you're thinking about, I could go anywhere in the world today. How do you assess where the light might be good at a particular time of year when you're ready to go out? So it isn't just the weather that you have to look for, right? Organic elements of location play a, a pretty big role in our decision of what we wanted to do. So I'll tell you, um, I'll give you an example. If I want to travel in fall, not only do I look for weather patterns at certain places, but I also look for colors. So a lot of times I will say, okay, I want to travel in fall, say third week of September. Where can I go which would give me either the best light or the best colors or the best geology that would allow me to take photographs? So we will not just look for light because light, after all, will depend upon uh, whether there are storms passing through the area. So we have some information about what the weather at a location was like or is going to be like as we go forward. But more than that, what we look for is what is the best chance of getting a photograph? And that includes colors, uh, geology, tides, any flowering seasons that are coming up, full moon if it is rising. So all of this play part in getting the right shot. Because even in a bad light, let's say you don't get a sunset, you can still do star trails. Um, let's say you don't get star trails and a sunset and say the sky is overcast all the time. You can still shoot waterfalls. Things like that. So we look for organic conditions that would allow us to produce the best photographs. And that includes weather, light, 
flowering seasons, geology, uh, terrain, all of those things. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you've been doing is, is you've been using HDR uh, as part of, of some of your, your photographs. What you do is not very, very much like a lot of the stuff that's been popularized as HDR. You, you, you go for a more realistic sort of aspect, uh, for lack of a better word, in which you're trying to reveal more of the tonal range and the color that you really can't capture with a single image because of the limited dynamic range of a, of a sensor. Can, can you tell me why that particular technique appealed to you and how you sort of came to use it in this particular way? The technique we use uh, for blending images is manual technique, which we have sort of adopted a name called IHDR. Now, I stands for Intelligent HDR. Um, essentially, what it involves is using layers and masks to actually blend images together to give it a natural look. Remember, I said my my first <laughs> fell in love with photography by these fantastic outdoor sites. So my primary goal for capturing photographer is photography is to be able to see what I see with my eyes. So I want to be able to sit and look at my photograph and say, it should look like you're looking out the window. Human eye is, and vision is quite dynamic. And HDR process, the way it works with turnkey solution, doesn't come close to producing the range and the tonality you see with human eyes. What we do is we like to have control over every aspect of the image. Sometimes we will choose to show the details in certain parts of the image, and other times we will choose to ignore the details in other parts of the image. So if I am photographing directly into the sun, if I am standing there on the mountain looking into the sun that is peeking from behind the cloud, there will be area around the sun where even my human vision cannot detect the details from there. And there will be shadow areas on the ground, behind a bush, behind evergreens, behind a rock or deep valley, where I will not be able to detect shadow details. Or if they are, they'll be so faint that it will probably not interest me. Now, to be able to stand there and reproduce a photograph, you need that fine control where you have absolute control over how much detail to expose in shadows, highlight, and mid-tone area so that it replicates your human vision as, as much as possible to be replicated in a, in a static image. And that is what appeals to me about the technique. Hmm. How important is, is the print in your creative process? Because even though a lot of people will experience your work online by either viewing your blog or your, or your website, in terms of your own creative workflow, is the print particularly important? And if so, why? Absolutely. Any of our images can be printed large. Our process for creating photographs is such that every pixel or every minute detail that we choose to expose or to blend needs to be just right. We sell our prints a lot of places uh, in, in hospitals and fine arts. We have a print gallery you can purchase prints from. And they're can be printed. I think our largest print to date has been about, I don't know, 60 inches or more. For us, every time we process the image, it's never about posting only a thumbnail. For us, processing is every image process has to be able to 
be able to turn into a print. And so I have about 750, maybe 800 images on my website. I can turn any of them into a print. Now, some some images are from an older 3-megapixel camera, and they can only do so much. But they'll be turned into a print, I mean, whatever the 3-megapixel can handle. You're doing a lot of teaching. You, you're, you and your wife write ebooks, do workshops. And recently you were in Nicaragua teaching kids photography. Yep. And so teaching is a big part of what you do. So why is that such an important aspect of your photography? Why is it important to you? Well, Nicaragua trip was a way to give back. And to be honest with you, I have to give all the credit to my wife. I am usually not the kind of person who would uh, take on humanitarian aspect as, as, as a leading thing and go run after it. But, but my wife certainly is. She's always wanted to do this, and it was her idea. And I just sort of followed her. In Nicaragua, what we were doing was we were trying to take these kids from slums. Part of the program that um, um, one of the organizations in Nicaragua is doing is to be able to make sure the kids stay in college or school. Sorry. What happens is that their uh, dropout rate in uh, the low-income families is very high. So 50% dropout rate on average is kids will never finish school, they'll get some sort of job, and again, without education, your job prospects are just as limited. So what this program does in Nicaragua is provide these kids with extracurricular activities like photography, bicycling club. And the way the program works is you have to stay in the school to be able to participate in the program. And the program also gives them help for computer learning, for uh, tutoring, um, and they have all kinds of other aspects of family life that they integrate into the program, such as uh, counseling and help with the homework and things like that. But if you drop out of school, you lose all the privileges and access to all the good things like photography and the computers and the bicycles and things. So the program has been very highly successful. They have several hundred kids in the program, I think about 280 or so in all. Their dropout rate is less than 20%. Mm. So 80% of the kids who are in the program, oh, sorry, 90% of the kids, my wife says, who are in the program stay in school and they finish school and go on to do something better like college or vocation after school. Nicaragua trip for us was to be able to teach kids photography so that they can get good photography started and our final objective was to have them start a gallery so the fun program funding can come from organic sources, Nicaraguans themselves. Well, that, that must have been really gratifying. I saw, I was reading the post and seeing the images, and it seemed like it was both fun and really inspiring. Oh, it was awesome. I mean, I never really, I'm not a people photographer. I, I, I hate dealing with people when I can avoid it. I'll just disappear in the woods. But this part of the trip was just awesome. I highly recommend if you really want to get more about to to learn more about that, you may consider interviewing my wife. She probably knows a lot more about it because she uh, she's more into it. Oh yes, that's, I, that's definitely part of the plan. I would love to interview her, her as well. And, and speaking of your wife, I mean, you both share a passion for photography. What's the best thing about it, and also what's one of the more challenging things about it? Not to get you oh. in trouble or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
if you hear a loud bang or something, she's probably going to hit me in the head with a shoe if I say something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think um, the best thing about it is we have a blog post called What Is It Being Like Shooting With Your Spouse? It's for us. It's like being on a date without the kids. We usually leave the kids at home. Two of us are out there. We are just lying there, sitting, shooting sunrises, sunsets. We'll go 10 miles. We'll be with each other. If we are tired, we will take a nap on a glacier or fall asleep on a beach. We don't have time schedules. We forget what time of day it is, what what day it is, yes, what uh, our stock market is doing or what political ups and downs are going on or which kid is screaming at other kids or uh, things. It is just absolutely breathtakingly relaxing for us. To be honest with you, it's like going on a week-long date every so often. Mm. I talked to a couple who share um, their friends of ours in there, and, and they enjoy shooting with each other, but they say it gets contentious when they sit down to edit each other's work. We don't uh, edit each other's work. We are actually very, very competitive and possessive of our own works. We have our own distincting styles. The only time it gets contentious for us, not between us, but um, a lot of times people will recognize one person and not the others. And, and what happens in that situation is a lot of our ebooks are written by Verena and I'm, uh, or designed and written by Verena. I'm just a co editor, sort of, so to speak. A lot of times people give credit to one person or another because they have not seen the other person's work. That's, mm. that's the only contentious issue we have. Uh, other than that, we don't mind sharing locations, we will show it at our shots. I see Verena disappear over the horizon and I can't hear her, her voice or I can't come in. We get worried about other person. So it's not like we're always shooting next to each other, mm -hmm. but we need to know that she's quarter mile that way. And if I call or, or if I don't see her, for, I, I need to, I'll stop and wait for her or go looking for her. We don't have, we, we're not that competitive with each other as much as the world makes us they see us differently. Yeah. Well, my last question is a question I ask all my guests, and I ask them to suggest or recommend another photographer for us to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that, who would that one photographer be and why? My recommendation, first recommendation would be for Verena, but you already know her. Um, so if you're only asking me for one, I would recommend that you interview her because her answers to some of the questions you asked me are going to be from a very different perspective. Um, the other reason is very unique, which is um, if you look at the landscape photography world, there are very, very few women landscape photographers. In fact, I can probably count them on my fingers, less than that. I am not a full-time photographer. I, I have other jobs that I do. Marina is a full-time landscape photographer, which is very unique in a sense that some of the considerations that she has to go through as being a woman is they're very different than how men go about doing their business. So if that's the recommendation you're looking for, that's my recommendation. If you want somebody else, I can uh, name a few others. No, that, that would be great. That would be great. So where can people find out more about all that you're doing, your photography, your workshops, your eBooks? Where, where's the best place to go? My website, www.jpatelphotography.com. 
my G plus page. Just go to uh, Google and type my name in it. It'll come up on search engines. But the best place to go would be uh, my website because all information that gets produced by us actually ends up on our website first and then gets distributed to social media. Well, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.